Casting with Kerry Jones. Hi guys, and welcome to this week's podcast. This week's guest is not a known name to many anglers outside of South Wales. However, at the age of 88, he has some interesting stories to tell. He took me on my first day's boat fishing as a young boy to Chew Valley many years ago. Not going to say how long, mind. But since that day, I have never looked back. Back then, the typical favourite method and cast was Muddler, Soldier Palmer, Silver and Victor, an appetizer on the point, cast in a long line and rip it back. A deadly method, and exciting to watch the bull waves chasing your flies. A method rarely used today. However, on that day, he opened my eyes to nymph and buzzer fishing, something totally new to the scene back then. While I was throwing out the long line to the horizon, he would cast no more than 30 foot, and was like a heron fixed on his floating line tip. Many outings followed, and I was hooked on my newfound fish-catching method of nymphs and buzzers. I meet up with him at his home in Talbot Green, South Wales. He still fishes a few times each season at Chew Valley, and has a weekend in Rutland every year. He talks about seasons and anglers past, and his love for the sea trout of South America and salmon of Alaska, which he has caught to over 40 pounds. Welcome to my chat with Dennis Williams. Well, it's good to see you again, Dennis. We go back a long way, don't we? Yes, we do. It's nice to see you, Kerry. I think the first time we met was in the Ospreys, Osprey Fly Fishers, and you were president then. One thing which I can say, the thing that stands out to my mind when I think of you was the very first time I fished on a boat Yes. Was actually at Chew Valley. And it must have been in my teens it was then, you know. Yeah. And I was in awe, you know. Never start with just fishing on a boat is one thing. Like, I, I, I was used to fishing meddlers and pulling wets. And I noticed that when I was casting, I was, you know, like probably 15, 16, long lines, 20, 30 yards or whatever, whacking around, pulling back. You only had maybe, I would say, 20, 30 feet yeah, of right. lying out and fishing nymphs. Yes. I never experienced or seen anything like that then. I think if I remember right, you were catching them on a phantom pupa, was it? Not on not on chew, no. I used a phantom pupa later, but the on chew, I well, I'd use a pheasant tail on the point, an orange fluorescent buzzer, a green fluorescent buzzer, and then... The fourth fly on the top would be an amber longhorn. Wow, was a fly I remember now, yeah. yeah. Fly, fly of the past, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really, I used to use that at Rutland as well regularly, but on that particular day, uh, which I remember well, um, that was my cast on that, my team on that day. And you could say on those days, way back then, really that was the start of nymph and buzzer fishing, wasn't it? Because... Wet flies and lures really was the... When I, st- when I started the buzzer fishing, there was nobody else around about. And um, what started me nymph fishing was one of the old um, 
Osprey members, uh, Danny Lewis. I remember, from Hopkinstown. That's right. And uh, Danny showed me some nymphs, first of all, and that sort of got me uh, thinking about nymph fishing. Uh, but then I I saw in the um, Trout Fisherman, or Trout Magazine, Trout and Salmon, rather, uh, a mag- uh, advert by a fisherman up in the North Country who was selling buzzers. Now, I thought, well, I'll, I'll buy a pack of those and have a look at them and see what they're like. So I bought this pack of buzzers, and in it was these fluorescent, orange and fluorescent green. I took them apart, actually. Never never fished with them. I took them apart to see what they were. Because all these were around about size 10. Yeah. So I uh, took them apart, and then I tied some of my own. And I tied them from 16, 14, and 12. And that's the way I used to use them. Well, they're heavier on the bottom, of course. The 12 uh, on the bottom, and uh, 14, 16. And that was a very successful team. I mean, I used to use that at Rutland or wherever I went, really. And then this was before anybody locally, that I, anybody I knew locally anyway, were using buzzers. Yeah. And um, there was certainly nobody else in the Ospreys using buzzers at the time. No. But um, So that's where my buzzer fishing developed, really. And I think probably, would, would you have anything to do with your course fishing background, because you did course fish as well, didn't you? Yes, I course fished for for some years uh, and trout fished at the same time. But due to due to course fishing, of course, you get you get you develop that um, method, of, and you develop a lot of patience, of course, which you, which you need when you're buzzer fishing, because I mean, very often you fish with a static line, and um, I mean, some of you, you probably heard of Arthur Cove. Yeah, the Cove Sailing Arthur Tale. Cove, he was the sort of heron on, uh, on Normanton Bank in in Rutland Water. And I had several chats with him. Did you? And, and he would stand there motionless. You know, you'd, you'd think he was a statue, really, at times. And he'd be just move the, the fly a little inch at a time and then he'd pause for, you know, a minute or so and then another little tweak. And that's the way Arthur Cove fished. And, of course, he was very successful. So um, I probably learned something from him as well, you know, because uh, that method certainly worked then. It doesn't work so well now. Uh, I have tried it in recent years. I still catch fish fishing static nymphs. And static buzzers, rather, yeah. but um, not as successful as it used to be years ago. That was a fly I used to fish a lot of, actually, the Cove's pheasant tail. Yes. Because it was, um, if I remember right, it's a pheasant tail body, wasn't it? But yeah. it was a curve, not just the, like the, the the standard pheasant tail, the Sawyer's. It was the curve coming around the shank, and then it had, was it hairs dubbing, wasn't it? Hairs mask yeah, dubbing, yes, I think. that's right. Yeah, with a copper rib. Yeah. It's funny how you forget flies. Yes, yeah. Like in those days, you know, the the most popular flies at that time, what I remember, are things like Ace Spears, Baby Doll, Sweeney Todd. Yeah. You know, they were more attractor patterns than imitative patterns. That's right. 
particularly at places like Rutland Water at the time, you know, after Rutland Water opened, you know, Baby Doll and things like that, they were the, they were the most popular flies. Uh, I can't remember the names of some of the others, but um, I, I, I stuck to my own, uh, my own team, though, always, you know. Yeah. I was keen after that experience of tying a load of buzzers then. And um, I remember then I tied some fluorescent green buzzers, which I hadn't come across before, which you told me. And we went to Horseshoe Lake. Yes, that's right. Remember? Yeah. Down by, um, I think it's by Malmesbury Way. I'm not sure if it's a car place now. Yeah, Siren Chester, that way. Yeah. 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 And Rainbow Lake next door to it. That's right. Yeah, there's yeah. lots of fisheries around then. But yeah. again, it was it was so good, and it was like you casting line. I remember you standing next to me, and he said, "Just watch your line." And I was just watching. I wasn't looking where the flies were, and then you see a little dick, and then I'd miss half of them. But then they had to be really quick, didn't you? That's right. Again, nowadays. Yeah, well, that was the method. Really, you was cast it out and and watch your line rather than wait for a for a pull. You know, you watch watch the end of your line if you're. <laughs> If your eyes are good enough, yeah. <laughs> and uh, as soon as you saw the move there, tighten into it, you know. Yeah. Never strike as such, but just tighten the line. It's so exciting because half the time, if you felt it, you'd missed it. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, very visual. Like. Yeah. But um, I remember as well we because we went fishing lots at that time um, over the space of a year or so. And one thing I do remember, apart from the fishing, what I noticed you've got one here now outside, you, you had a Mercedes car, and it's the first time I've been in a car to 100 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and it was yeah. a stretch between um, Story Arms and Libanus. I don't know if you remember, I really remember it, because I could see that needle going up. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we were going to that day, either Cloedog maybe, or some pictures you showed me earlier on, Ross Fisheries. It was on that day it was, you know. Yeah, yeah. Cluedog, of course, was very popular with us at that time, you know. I mean, Ospreys used to take a couple of trips there a year, you know, have a club competition there, and then um, a competition against the Llanidloes Club, and and other competitions then. The, um, the Cluedog Shield was all there. And uh, we had the Molly Sweet there on a couple of occasions yeah. as well. And they still have the European Open. They haven't got that oh, there, Oh, no? yes. Well, that... that uh, <laughs> I, I fished in the first one there. Did you? And uh, I went down to my... Uh, Uncle Eric, I had a... One point where I always fished. And uh, I... It was a little... Actually, it was an island at times... Just, just a little. I, I remember seeing you fishing there. The Floyd, and uh, that's right. And um, yeah, I mean that was my favourite spot there. That's where I almost always went as Cluedo. But when I fished in that the first European Open, I thought, oh, I'll go down to my usual spot. But I went down. I couldn't get on it. I think I'm not sure. I think you were on it. <laughs> the water was high, wasn't it? It was high, and I went in at my um, waist actually. But that that competition, I won't name names, but um, there were a few cheats present. Was there? Yeah. Uh. And um, I I know that one chap that didn't catch any fish. Well, he, he must have caught a couple. 
but he weighed in a lot more than he'd caught. Oh. But as a couple of his friends didn't. You know, yeah, I know what you mean, sharing the bags. Three of them. So I won't, I won't go any further in yeah. case he, in case he may be yeah. listening. And uh, <laughs> but the the Floyd after then the times we used to go, that's my number one spot now, because it goes up into a riverbed then, doesn't it? That's and right. It's deep. Yeah. And there was there was three of us when we used to go. There was myself and there was Bob Hyatt as well. Yeah. Well, on two occasions now I walked. I I won the Clueric Shield there about three times. I'd won it one year, and on that second year, I took Bob, Bob Hyatt came up with me, and Bob beat me by about half an ounce, okay. so we br we brought it back, you know, we'd already taken it up in my car, so we brought the shield back, Bob had it for a year, so we went up the next year then, and I bought the yeah. following year. But did you? <laughs> we went back in the same car? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I won it three times, actually, and... Uh, um, but Bob won it that once in between, and we'd gone up together, you know. Have we been there in recent years? I haven't been to Cloelog now for quite a few years. Well, I, I do remember the year. It was 1985, I think, I last fished Cloelog. Was it? Yeah. And um, because it was after then, I got involved in the theatre, which um, took more of my time than I could spare, you know, to go yeah. uh, trout fishing. But I did trout fish still. I went, I went regularly with uh, with Bob to Chew and Blagden, of course. That's what I saw you last year, wasn't it? This year, at the Chew, last season. at yeah. Chew Valley, that's Having right. Having breakfast. In interviewing John Horsey. Yeah. So, yeah, so we fished Chew and Blagden for years. and uh, But we always go to Rutland as well for three days. Uh, for many years now we've done that. Uh, apart from two years, we went to Rutland Water, gone off a little on one year, so we, we went to Bill Bridge and had a very good three days on Bill. And uh, and then the following year, we went to Draycott, which again was uh, very good. But we ended up going back to Rutland, where we're going again this year sometime, Um because of the restaurants there, the, uh, the evening uh, right. <laughs> procedures drag us back to Rutland. There are some very good Italian restaurants in Rutland, in Oakham. Oakham, yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, so that's where we... Uh, I haven't been for a number of years. And religiously, like you, I would always go, and we always stay in the same place. There was a and b called Mrs. Waits. Mrs. Waite. Well, I introduced uh, Ospreys to Mrs. Waite. Uh, because well, I used to organise the uh, the boat trips yeah. to Rutland for Osprey. And, of course, Mrs. Waits was one of the places. The other one was the hotel down in the town. I forget what it was called then. It's now called the Whipper Inn. Not a good name for it. And there was <laughs> another uh, pub which the boys stayed in on the way to Mrs. Waits. But, of course, Mrs. Waits could take about ten people. Yeah. Time. She had a, a shed in the garden. <laughs> this year, I can remember that. Yeah. yeah. And some in the house. And um, I remember that the first trip I organised up there, there were 40 of us went up. And yeah. we had 20 boats. And um, 
these were in the days when Rutland had uh, inboard diesels. All right. And that was a, they were great boats because if it was cold, you know, you, you sat on the motor <laughs> and warmed up. But they were great boats and they were absolutely steady in the water, even in the highest of winds, you know. Yeah. yeah. But, um, of course, they changed them eventually because any servicing with an inboard diesel, the, uh, the boat had to be lifted out of the water, you see. So, of course, that, would, uh, that yeah. was costing money. So, eventually, they went to... Uh, so you plan to go this year now, then? Yes, we're going this year. We haven't decided on the date yet. Possibly in July, July this year. And you go with Bob? Bob Hyatt. Bob Hyatt, yeah, yeah. Um, and Bob Challenger. Bob Challenger and Gwilym Appleby. That's right. Our, that's our team for this year, as it was last year. You hit the restaurants. But, um, <laughs> and the rest, well, we have a choice of restaurants there. There's uh, there's one very good pub there. Um and a couple of good Italian restaurants, you know. So yeah, yeah. there's a good choice of eating places in in Oakham. Do you fish locally these days, anywhere? Um, just chew, I guess, now and again. No, it? I mean chew is the lo- is the nearest local, really. Yeah. Uh, chew and Blagden, you know. Yeah. Um, I haven't been to Flandagbeth for some years now, and of course the rivers, although Ospreys have got a very good stretch, of course, on the on the chaff, which uh, I was responsible for negotiating them to have from uh, a friend of mine who farmed up there. And uh, we went up before the mines closed and viewed the river. And I can always remember after the mines closing that the water it ran clear. About three Within about three weeks, the water was running clear. Up until then, it would be absolutely black, you know. Yeah. And um, anyway, I was responsible for the Ospreys getting that stretch of water. And um, I think at the time, I'm not sure what they're paying for it now, but I think at the time, we arranged a price of £60 a year <laughs> wow. for the whole stretch, which was... Um, the, they've actually got, as well, Cantrev Reservoir. Yes. And I fished that in the last year, and uh, I was surprised how good it is, actually. With, it's just wild browns, it is. Yes. But we're having a few over the pound, yeah. which is nice. I did fish it some time years, some years ago when they took it over first of all. Yeah. No, sorry, it's not Cantrev. I got that wrong. No, it's Beacons. Beacons, the top Beacons, one. Beacons, yeah, yeah, That's yeah. That's right. Beacons Reservoir. Yeah. I was surprised at how good it was, to be honest. Was you part of the, the gang, you could say, which formed the Ospreys? How did you come about the club? Well, a few fellas got together. Lynn Price... Um, Brian Ward and a few others, they got together and Aldo Marenghi was one of them as well. And they decided to form a club mainly for fishing reservoirs. And um, I, I, we all chipped in a, a tenner. Um, Aldo persuaded me to chip in a tenner, although at the time I only fished the rivers, you know, fished the Ask yeah. and uh, the Y. And... Um, I chipped in ten pounds as well, but I never actually fished with them until nineteen seventy seven and um in the meantime, they'd fished for a number of years. I can't remember what year they started. I think it was the very early seventies and 
well, fishing around, you know, and I'd read about them in the paper, in the uh, local press, you know, about their, some of their exploits. And um, in 19, it was 1977 when uh, I, I used to go to Aldo's Cafe in Tree Havard. And I went in there one day and he persuaded me to try reservoir fishing with him, you know. Yeah. And um, But the first time I went was to Blagden Reservoir. And I fished with in a boat with Clive Summerfield. And we had a bad day. We blacked almost up until gone 5.30. And I hooked a fish. And um, it turned out to be a, a brownie of six pounds. Wow. And in getting back then t to the, uh, the jetty, I got out. And I'd only just bought a, a rod specifically for um, reservoir fishing, because up until then, I'd always used, on the river, a seven-foot Alcox Tarquin split cane rod. <laughs> seven-foot split cane. Yeah, Alcox Tarquin, and, um, which I bought in Jack Lexton's. Nobody will remember Jack Lexton, I don't suppose. <laughs> Jack Lexton had a shop in uh, Penarth Road in Cardiff. Right. It's long gone now, you know. I mean, I think the gas board built a building on it eventually, but it was, uh, uh, that was a, one of the well-known tackle shops of the day. And I bought this Alcock's Tarquin there to fish up on the Hondi and on the Usk. But anyway, um, 1977, uh, I went up for lunch in Aldo's Cafe and he persuaded me to come up to the Osprey Club, who that time were meeting in the uh, some rooms above Lloyd's Bank in Pontefield. Yeah. And um, Lynn Price was the secretary. And um, they persuaded me then to come on uh, this uh, trip to, Bla to Blagdon. So as I said, we fished there on the boat, came up to, gone half past five, and I hooked this fish, and it was a six-pound brownie. And I had this brand-new rod, which I bought, a ten-footer from... A chap who at the time was the president of Ospreys, Sandy Palmer, and he was a uh, lived in Caerphilly. He was a bit disabled, but he made fiberglass rods. And a lot of the Ospreys had them, you know, ten foot fiberglass, which was a good rod for reservoir fishing. So I'd bought this rod, and in the rush then to get back to the way in, I got off the boat. Cardinalson pointed the rod forward instead of backwards pointed the rod forward and in running to the get to the way in, run into a tree with my rod <laughs> and snapped <laughs> it on the very first time. Oh, but, no. <laughs> but as it happened, Sandy Palmer got to know about this and gave me another rod. Did he? Yeah. So I, I had two for the price of one or one and a half. How did you do in the competition? So the competition then I went to the competition and of course six pound brownie, I won it. Because oh. <laughs> that was my very first competition, and um, and I won it purely. I bet it was on an for a buzzer as well, was it? Oh yes, it would have been. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I can't remember which one actually, but I know it would have been on one of my yeah. uh, one of my team of buzzers. Yeah. You were saying you fished Talabont or the river going into Talabont in the early days as well. Yes. Well, I I used to fish it from the the top of the hill coming down into Talibon. And at that time, 
you, you, I mean, you, you couldn't get across the, the stream without waders on. You know, it was a, it was a yeah, it's a brook now, uh, isn't it? Yeah, and it was in later years, of course, that they built, they uh, planted all these pine trees on the Honestly. both sides of the mountain there, and of course that took all the takes all the water. So uh, it's only a it's only a stream now, whereas. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, by the, by the time it got down to Charlie Bond, I mean, it was a, a decent-sized river. Yeah. Because there were a lot of other little streams joined it on the way, you know, but, of course, the, the water's all taken up now by the trees. Do you fish Charlie Bond now? I haven't fished Charlie Bond. The last time I fished there was with a club competition, and probably that would have been about 1983, 85, something like that. I remember we fished it once or twice in those days. And throughout the years then, each season I'd have one day there, a day ticket. But last year you had my full season there for the first time. And uh, I love it. It's, it's gripped me, you know. It's not an easy place to fish, but it's only browns, wild browns, not stocked. Yeah. And it's predominantly the last hour of the day, you know, you're going to get the most activity unless it's a a dirty, dark day, you know, yes. when they're active, you know. But um, but like I said, that brook, that top end is a good spot where the brook comes in. I can imagine what it was like then with the river. That's right, where it comes in. Well, when I joined the Ospreys then, and whenever we fished Salibont, that was the only place I fished, was where the, <laughs> the, river, <laughs> the river runs in, where it comes yeah. in. Because there was a nice pool there as well, and the formed pool formed there, and that's where I used to fish there. And I nymph fish there, you know, or buzzer fish rather. I always did well there. You're in Tabacreen now, but you weren't originally from Tabacreen. You were from Aronda as well, weren't you? I was from Tonopandi originally, and um, I lived above what was then the fifty shilling tailors. <laughs> you could buy a suit for two pounds ten. And um, then, of course, it went into John Collier's took over. I think it's a travel agent now. But um, <coughs> that's where I started my fishing from when I was about, well, it was just at the end of the war. Uh, that would be 1945. And I used to get a bus down, as it happens, to Anasmadi, which is just up the road from here. The, uh, the bus used to stop near the bridge. I'd go, to go in there with a, a homemade net and a jar. Was <laughs> and, and fish from minnows uh, and small, the occasional small trout as well. And we'd fish from there right up to the bridge uh, where the road runs over to Flantrissant. And um, this was before, long before the mint was built there, of course, long before it was thought of. So how old are you then? Twelve. That's when you started, was it? That's when I started. But in later years, of course, I moved to Talbot Green, and then I start. I started fishing the river up there again. But I'd I'd fish it from just at the bottom of the, the hill here, really, the start of the golf course, and I'd fish it all the way down then to where the mint is now, and then I'd fish back up. I'd fish down one side, cross over the bridge. And then come back up to the the road the road bridge near Talbot Green, and I've got a couple of stories about that. I mean, one story was I was fishing down. I used to go in the eve in the night, you know, and um, 
fish for just a couple of hours. You wouldn't fly fish then? Yes, fly oh, fish. Right. Yeah. And uh, this was after I moved here to Talbot Green. And um, uh, I was went down one night now. I mean, you, you, you didn't have to cast very far, you know. It was just a little, uh, <laughs> little roll cast often, you know. And I caught a fish, I mean, just over half a pound, which was, a, you know, a pan-sized fish in those days, which... Uh, I didn't. Uh, I, I didn't always keep fish from there. I, you know, put them, put them, put them back very often. But on this occasion, I, uh, I thought, oh, I'll keep one, and take it home. So I took this, caught this fish, put it on the ground beside me instead of in my bag, walked on down another twenty, thirty yards or more fishing, and I thought, oh, I'll go back now and pick my fish up and carry on down. So I went back up, and the fish had gone. So I thought, crikey, that's strange. So I looked around and then I looked up and there was an owl <laughs> in the tree and the owl had my fish in its claws. No. On the branch, yeah. He picked up the fish and Jeez. took it up to the branch. You wouldn't think an owl would so I, Anyway, I thought, well, he deserves to keep it after that. So I left him <laughs> keep it and went on fishing. But. And another funny story, on an occasion again now, I went down, fished down river, crossed over the uh, bridge, fishing back up the other side, and there was a fence there, a wire fence. And I used to crawl under the fence to get to, to come back up, you know. So I got to the fence now and put my rod under, crawled under, and as I was crawling under, <coughs> I thought, well, I haven't seen these trees before, they were four trees <laughs> I thought I haven't seen these trees here before and uh, so I got out thinking I'd come to the wrong part of the, the river you know of the fence rather and um, I stood up and then of course I realised I'd crawled under a horse <laughs> and, and the horse was you know a horse they, with the biggest shock you were the horse they sleep standing up sometimes obviously because this one he was well. He he wasn't asleep when I stood up, so I I was so taken aback by this. You know, I started talking to the horse. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and that was one thing I always remember about that. But of course, then in later years they built the mint, and of course when they built the mint, they ruined the river because they um, they concreted most of it down in steps in case it flooded. You know. Yeah. And uh, so I've never fished it since. Uh, I did go up once and try to fish it, but of course with concrete steps and the <coughs> the fish weren't keen on living around that area, you know. So yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. You've done a fair bit of travelling as well, haven't you? Oh yes. You with your fishing, I noticed uh, you showed me some pictures there now of South America. Well, yes. Um, Who actually got you to? get into fishing for South America, wasn't it? Was it Arthur Oglesby? No, uh, Arthur, actually, I met Arthur Oglesby around about 1995, I think it was, or 94, at the game fair. And Arthur, at that time, used to do the casting demonstrations, because, of course, he was a tremendous caster. And um, I got chatting to him there, and... Uh, and he said, oh, why don't you come up and... I, at that time, I hadn't done any salmon fishing, you know. I'd only trout fishing up to that time. And um, he said, why don't you come up and uh, come on one of my 
costing courses at uh, on the Spey at um, Castle Grant. So uh, I did. I went in 1995. I went up and I went on one of his courses. And um, uh, I mean, some of the others that were there, of course, had never never cast a rod of any sort in their lives. But I had a bit of experience because I was a trout fisherman. But Arthur taught me how to spay cast and double spay cast, you know. And um, so I, I that, that started me salmon fishing then. And then, of course, at the time, he was running trips to Alaska. So I booked and went on one of the trips and fished with Arthur in Alaska. Wow. And I went there for several years then following ever since. And... Uh, it was uh, it was one of the chaps I met while fishing up on the uh, on the Spey, um, a fellow called Jim Cunningham, who was still a great friend of mine, great character, Scott. And whenever we fished, actually, I used to go along as his interpreter. <laughs> so <laughs> if he's listening to this, he'll know. Anyway, um, he'd been he'd had one trip to uh, Tierra del Fuego, so. He said, why don't you come to Terra del Fuego? So, of course, we, we went. And we, we stayed in a, uh, what was a, a, a grotty hotel, really, in Terra del Fuego. Uh, a little side story to the first time that we went there. I was staying there. It wasn't all that long after the Falklands War. And we went in, uh, we were in the hotel one night in the bar, and who, who should come in but a troop of Argentinian soldiers. There was a camp nearby. And... Um, the sergeant spoke quite good English, so he came up to me and he said, you English? So I said, no, no, I'm from Wales, I'm Welsh. Ah, Wales, he said, rugby, <laughs> rugby. So I said, yes, that's right. So he went to my friend Jim Cunningham, who was a Scot, and um, he said to Jim, uh, you English? No, he said, no, I'm, I'm from Scotland. So, oh, he said, Scotland, yeah, yeah, whiskey, whiskey. So then he went to the third one, another friend of mine, still a friend, a fellow called David Wilkinson, a retired uh, sea captain. So he went from Newcastle. So he went up to Dave and he said, are you English? No, he said, well, I, I come from, uh, I, I'm English, but I come from very near Scotland. <laughs> 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 so, so I said to this uh, sergeant, I said, uh, why do you ask? Why do you ask? So he said, ah, England, Mrs. Thatcher, oh. best woman in the world. So I said, oh, why do you say that? Got rid of Galtieri. Because Galtieri was, you know, the, was, was hated by most people in Argentina. Is it? I mean, in Buenos Aires, there was a big wall probably still there. And they did demonstrations there for many years after Galtieri had died. Um but there was a, a, this wall in Buenos Aires with all the photographs of the thousands of people that had disappeared during Galtieri's uh, reign in, our, in Buenos Aires, you know. Well, she did something right to a certain yeah. extent then. But the fishing, that was uh, tremendous. We'd, we'd fly out to uh, Buenos Aires, stay overnight and have a steak in the best restaurant in uh, in Buenos Aires, down on the front, and although it was the best restaurant, I mean, the the meal, steak, and as much as you could eat, and all sorts. I mean, it would cost about 
two or three quid, you know. Wow. <laughs> is that a must-have? Wherever you go fishing, you've got to have good restaurants, is it? Oh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> so anyway, we carry on. The following morning, then we take a flight down to uh, Tierra del Fuego. And uh, the Gillies would come and meet us from the, um, the lodge. At the time, we stayed with a fella, and I can't remember his name, but he'd been in the Argentinian Air Force uh, and survived. And um, he was running these trips where Jim and Dave had been the year before. And um, we went there. Anyway, we stayed in this grotty hotel in Buenos Aires and had to travel to the river. But this one day, now we were out fishing on the river, and this uh, chap comes along, and he he looked like a, a local, you know, old anorak on and uh, came up and started chatting to Jim, my friend, who was quite a character, always uh, always had a joke to tell, you know. And um, chatting to uh, Jim, my friend, and then the ghillie, uh, or the guide rather, said, come and have a cup of coffee now. So we went and had a cup of coffee and this chap had a cup of coffee with us. And um, he said, oh, i tell you what, he said, why don't you come to my house for dinner this evening? So now on the way out, we passed several little shacks, you know, because made out of uh, uh, some of them, obviously, bits of cardboard and whatever they could find, you know. Yeah. So I thought, oh, crikey, I hope it's not going to be one of those. <laughs> anyway, he goes off now, and our guide says, oh, you were the lucky ones, he said. That's Fernando Menendez, that's the name of the that's Fernando Menendez. He owns the Estancia, he said. And his Estancia, he said, is quite something when you go there. So anyway, the, the, the guy brought us down that night. And we had went in for uh, dinner. And he had this tremendous bar. And every sort of drink on it you can imagine. And uh, anyway, he came in and he said, what wine would you like with your dinner? So he said, well... What have you got? Come down to the cellar, he said. So he, this was all built by him, and he dug down deep enough in the cellar uh, to build this uh, storeroom for his wine. We went down there, and he had 9,000 bottles of wine. Wow. One of the reasons being, he's the director of Mendoza Wines. Never. And he invited you to his place. Yeah. Now, the Estancia was some, some place. I mean, this Estancia was where he had lived in, and still still lived himself. He had he lived in Buenos Aires, but he had this uh, house as well which belonged to his grandfather, etc. But in the Estancia, there were there was a churches, bars. What's an Estancia, then? What is Estancia, it? Estancia, well, it's a... It's, it's an estate. A ranch. Oh, the ranch. All right, yeah, yeah. And um, three dining rooms... One for the gauchos, which was considered to be the gaucho was considered to be the top of the the, the top employee, you know. All right, yeah. And he had a team of gauchos, of course, because they travel up to a hundred miles, I think, really. And um, um, but it w- eventually, then he, uh, he said, "Well, come and join us, and you can come and stay here in future. You know, you're paying for the fishing." So you can come and stay here. So from then on, we stayed in this. We had a, a suite each 
you know. The bathroom was <laughs> was the size of this <laughs> conservatory that we sat in now. And, so um, he owned the fishing rights? Oh, he, well, he owned the... He, he, he owned he, the river? He owned the river. He owned the, uh, the, the whole area, which is probably about half the size of Wales. Wow. Because he took me one day for a trip on it to take me, show me around, and we went almost to the foothills of the Andes, you know? Wow, that's an experience. And, um, and what's the fishing like there, then? Oh, absolutely incredible. The, it's, it's mainly sea trout. Right. Um, you do get the occasional rainbow as well, which we've gone to sea, you know, and come back. And um, But mainly the fishing is sea trout. But, of course, I was fishing there, and one year I I hooked this fish, and, it, 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 it you know, it, it, I, I said to the, uh, the guide, I said, okay, we, ha- we had to have a guide for every two fishermen, you know. And, so uh, is it a big river? Oh yeah, yeah, it's quite a big river, the Rio Grande. And it, uh, I mean, you fish in the wind is tremendous. Mm, of course, that's right yeah. here at El Fuego. You could never fish into it. You always got to have it. Would it be fished a double hander in those rivers? I we fished a double hander. Now a lot of the Americans that were coming there were still using single handers then, but we only used fifteen foot. Rods, and um, the Americans were in awe of it at that time, you know, of seeing a fifteen-foot rod. They said, "How do you handle that rod?" You know. And, uh, yeah. But anyway, um, fishing on this estancia, Maria Behetti, the estancia is called, and um, the, 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 the sea trout fishing is tremendous, of course. You know, and you catch. 20 pound fish are common. You know. Really? Sea trout now? And, um, but anyway, on one occasion there, I hooked into this fish and I said to the guy, this doesn't feel like a, doesn't feel like a sea trout. I said, it's a, you know, a different fight to it entirely. And, and it's a big fish. So, um, anyway, eventually I got it in and when the, uh, the guide, when the guide saw saw the fish, he said, oh, what's that? I said, well, it looks like an Atlantic salmon to me. And uh, on examination, then we took a couple of scales out of it, yeah. took photographs, put it back, and then downriver was an American team doing some research on the river. And uh, so I gave the... Samples. Uh, the um, scales to this American team, and a day or so later, they said, "Yes, it's scales from an Atlantic salmon." And uh, of course, it was verified as well by. I mean, I sent it to Trout and Salmon, and uh, uh, I've got a couple of letters as well from it. So it was the. It's so far, and as far as I know, it's still. The only Atlantic salmon ever to be caught. <laughs> and how big was it? Uh, it was seventeen and a half pound. Wow! It wasn't it wasn't big by the nice trout thing. by the sea trout standards, but it fought a lot, a lot better than a sea trout, which is why I said to him, I said, you know, it didn't feel like a sea trout, you know, and when I was playing it. Anyway, as I said, and it's it as far as I know, it still stands as. Uh, only salmon. That's a world record <laughs> of a Atlantic salmon caught in a Pacific River. And of course, well into a Pacific River. You know, I mean, right down at Tierra del Fuego is the uh, 
So you've had twenty pounds Citro from there yourself? Oh, cricky! I think the best one I had was twenty nine pound. Wow! But uh, how would you fish for them then? With um, you, you, you can throw the line in the air, and the wind would take it. Is that strong? <laughs> right across to the other side. And what sort of flies and leader strength would oh, you use? Oh, big flies, big. Uh, you use almost half a pack of uh, of marabou, you know. Who was that? Marabou? <laughs> yeah. But uh, other other flies as well. The Prince Nymph. Um, only big, big three inch. But some of the flies you use were tremendous, you know, up to six inches long. Yeah. And what uh, breaking strain would you use then, the leader? Oh, minimum of 20 pounds. That's uh, that's the most I always used to use. Never more than twenty, but uh, you had to use that because it was, you know. And you'd cast across sort of forty-five degrees and just swing it round, then, is it? Well, normally there we cast straight across because with the the wind, I mean the wind is tremendous. When you're walking up the bank, for example, sometimes you're walking at an angle of about forty-five degrees. Really, as bad as that. The wind is is so bad. Yeah. But you, you can always find a place to river to fish on the Rio Grande because it snakes mm. all the way. So you can always find a place where the, it's over, you know, over your left shoulder or um, or immediately behind you. Are you allowed to keep them then? Or does it return, is it? No, all the fish in Tierra del Fuego you return. Yeah. In Alaska, we were allowed to keep... Um, a couple, of course, in both places you fish with barbless hooks. So, for uh, in Alaska, you fish with salmon then. Salmon in Alaska, all the different types of salmon. And well, I did catch a nice big brownie up there as well, uh, and a rainbow. What was the time? Uh, grayling, good for grayling as well. Is it mainly the, the salmon? You know, the, the most popular one is the chum salmon. Uh, I tell you a little story. One of the parties that always joined us was uh, Josie. He was a Portuguese, and we called him Josie because, first of all, we called him Jose, yeah. because we thought, you know, the, the spelling was as the Spaniards pronounced Jose, but he said, no, 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 in Portugal, it's Josie, Jose. not Jose. So anyway, Josie fished with him several times, could hardly speak English, but he knew all the swear words. <laughs> he, taught, he picked up all the swear words from Jim, my friend. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> my Scottish friend, Jim Cunningham. Anyway, um, Josie, all, when he went, he was a coast fisherman in, in Portugal, but he always came to uh, Alaska to catch the chum salmon. And you know, to catch 200 in a week was, uh, that was just below average, really, I suppose. You caught that many chum salmon. And what size would they be then? Oh, again, well over 20 pounds. Really? Yeah. And uh, there are other there, of course. You've got the, the sockeye, the pink, and the king salmon as well. And um, anyway, going back to the chum salmon with uh, Josie, on one day, he wanted to see how many he could catch in a day. So... He had to help him, Jim Cunningham, my Scottish friend, and Dave Wilkinson, the sea captain. And they were, Josie was casting out. He'd hook a fish, just partly play it in. He'd hand the rod to Dave, 
would bring the fish in. In the meantime, Jim would hand him another rod, hand Josie another rod. He'd cast out again till he hooked the fish. And then when he hooked that one, he'd bring it back in for Dave. And so D- Dave was playing the fish for him. And um, Jim was loading the rod and handling the rod. And in the day, he caught 200 chum salmon. Wow. Uh, days fishing. But he slept that night. But So that was the only way he could do it, mind. There were yeah. three of them, really. He yeah. had two helpers. He was hooking them. And the one was taking them off and the other giving them a rod. Feel free to visit my online shop on my website where you will find a selection of my most popular Irish sign prints plus a choice of ghillie kettles and cooking accessories. Or if you would like to experience one of my guiding and instruction packages, feel free to message me. Or again, take a look at my tuition and guiding page at castingwithkerryjones.com there you said um, you had a £40 one day and then shortly after Grace uh, Ogilby well uh, the first I had a couple of £40 the first £40 I caught I was fishing for chum and with a floating line single fly and um, anyway the the guide that we had a very good guide and uh, he he said he said, I, I think that a, a king salmon is further down the pool there. So I said, oh, shall I try for him? Oh, he said, king, you've got to get right down for the king salmon. So anyway, I cast out, long cast, and I let it sink and sink and sink and sink. You know, I, was, I was standing in the water at that time, you know, and the, the boat, because you know, we always had a boat fish on that river. And um, uh, I let it go down and I felt a pull and hooked into it and lo and behold I took the king salmon and started playing it and he said get in the boat he said you're not going to land it <laughs> standing in the water so I got in the boat and we went downstream because it, it just turned and it wanted to get back to sea you know and it turned yeah, yeah. and we uh, we had to follow it down about a kilometre before and tried to reel in and let it go and then reeling and let it go. Got it in of us eventually and it was a forty pounder. Wow. But another forty pounder I caught, it was this this was after Arthur Oglesby had died, you know. And um his wife Grace carried on with his uh, uh trips that he had going out to Alaska. So I was there one day fishing with uh, uh Grace in a boat and with uh a ghillie that, um, or a guide rather, called Scott Howell, which uh, Arthur Oglesby always said was the best guide in the world. And um, we were fishing there, and I hooked a 40-pounder, brought it in, and about a quarter of an hour later, Grace, she was a very good fisherman, Arthur's wife, Grace Oglesby, Grace hooked a fish, brought it in, 60 pounds. Beat me by 20. Jeez. <laughs> that was yeah. some fish, wasn't it? Yeah. We were allowed to uh, keep, we weren't allowed to keep kings, but we were allowed to keep uh, sockeye and chum, and the chum if you wanted, but the chum apparently were not good eating, you know? Yeah, yeah. But the sockeye were. But the sockeye, now that's a strange thing to see because there were um, lookout towers on the river 
where a man would fly in and he'd be staying there for the day or more to count the sockeye coming up the river. Now the sockeye, when they when the sockeye comes up the river, they come in a pod like a like a flock of geese. They get the one in the front and then all coming behind. And of course the sockeye it's a it's a filter feeder. It doesn't actually feed. You know, they, it comes up the river with its mouth open, taking what it can, and it goes out back out through the gills, obviously. Right. And um, so you've got a target, you fish, really. If you, if you spook if you spook them, they've gone. But you can see, actually see them coming up river because they swim up it's on the, the surface with their dorsal fin out of the water. And this is the way these counters uh, count the fish. They see the start of the... Um, the pod coming up, they see how many lines of pod there are in the pod, and so they know how many fish are in that pod, so they know in a day how many fish are going up river. The reason being they want to keep the uh, number of fish in the river rather than let the John West boats, which, yeah, yeah. which were in Bristol Bay at the bottom of the river, uh, and if if the salmon count went down, they could stop the boat fishing. Right. And um but of course the boats there'd be a few boats down in the in the bay. And they, I don't know how many Have you been there in recent years? Two thousand and six or seven, that might Is have been it? my last time. So how long have you been retired then? I retired in nineteen ninety eight. Oh that long? Jesus. So that's twenty um 24 years now. Because you had the car business, the, the, the tyre business, rather. I um, started off with the tyre business, yeah. And that was in, started that in 1959-60. And then, of course, in 1983, I, I still owned the tyre service, but I started uh, a company called Scenic and Property Hire, yeah. making scenery for the theatre. How did you get into that? Because that's not something was an obvious thing to do, was it? Well, I performed as an amateur before I went in the army, uh, and then when I went in the army, uh, it's a great long story. But eventually, because there were two Welshmen in the regiment, and the regiment they wanted a singer for their band. It was a very good military band, and a very and a really top class dance band. Um, where most of the players went out and made a name for themselves in uh, in music business in this country. And uh, they wanted a, a, a singer, so they put up on orders, you know, will uh, Trooper Williams and Trooper Coglan, which were the only two Welshmen in the regiment, report to the band office. So they went to the band office, and the bandmaster had brought in a, a professor from a... Detmold Music Academy, which is one of the top music academies in Germany. And um, so he said, well, I, I'd never sung in my life because actually I'd gone to a Catholic primary school, went into Tonopandi Secondary School, and of course anybody, any from the Catholic school, weren't allowed into uh, assembly. We were all shepherded off into a classroom until assembly finished. So I never even sang in assembly, you see. So I'd never sung in my life. Why would that have been? I don't know. I don't know. They just wanted to keep the uh, 
Catholic stuff, right? Catholic separate, I suppose. Right. And um, anyway, um, that's how I started. Anyway, the, the, the professor picked me, and they sent. Uh, at the time, I I I qualified as a tank driver, signal a gunner, and. Uh, Anyway, the professor, they took me, I went in, to live in, in the academy, for a general academy, for quite a few weeks, and l I learnt seven songs. And I came out in the end of May, 1951, <coughs> and we immediately went on a tour of the UK <coughs> with the band as the singer. Right. So at the time then as well, I took up the clarinet. And eventually I got into the band as well as a clarinet player <laughs> and sax player in the dance band. But, uh, and the singer, of course. So I, I did that then for uh, five years. <coughs> I was a regular. And then in 1956 I came out and I went straight into uh, um, a nightclub in London as a singer and played the baritone sax as well. And in those cases, of course, the nightclubs in those days, I mean, it was a bow tie job, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> not, the not the clubs that you know, yeah. that we know of these days. And um, I, did, I did that, but I came home and I'd been booked to uh, do a summer season in Redcar in Yorkshire with a, a band called Danny Mitchell and his band. And um, uh, anyway, I met a met a girl and decided I'd leave it a little while and go back at Christmas because I was also booked to uh, go into a pantomime in Bradford, the famous Bradford Alhambra. Time took over and I, I never went back full-time. I did some part-time work afterwards. You know, I sung in uh, Princess Hotel in Bermuda and I sung in uh, Diplomat Hotel in, in Hollywood, Miami and the Colony H Hotel on Palm Beach. And a few other places, went to Jamaica, sung in Jamaica as well. Um, but generally then, I uh, I was hooked into uh, an amateur company. There was a company in uh, Tonopandi called the Midrondor Operatic Society. And a, f a young friend of mine, Derek Cleverden, uh, was in the group there. And he persuaded me to come up one night. He said, we're company looking for somebody to sing... Uh, Old Man River in Showboat. So anyway, I went up and sang for them and I, I got the part. And that was my start then in uh, in amateur operatic. So over the years, I, I I probably did hundreds over the years, you know, sung in all sorts of places. I did quite a lot in the new theatre. So did uh, you find there was a, um, an opening then? For stage backdrops and stuff. Yes, there was really, and you know, I, 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 having been a solo singer, there was, you know, uh, I had a bit of an advantage over some of the others because, of course, I, I never suffered from nerves because I'd sung in front of, uh, uh, you know, audiences of thousands of people. You know, I mean, probably at the time, the biggest one I ever sang in front of was in the open air theatre in Scarborough, which held nine thousand people. Of course, these were in the days when foreign holidays yeah. really were the only a thing for the very rich people, you know? Yeah. And these were in the in the 50s. And um, so I, I, 
I didn't do a lot of fishing in, in those years, but one of the band members, a fellow called Gabby Valance, Derek Valance, uh, and he had a rod. And I can remember we stayed at one time <coughs> in the Intelligence Corps camp in Maresfield in Sussex. And there was a lake in the camp. And uh, Gabby knew that I'd fished a bit, so he said, oh, come along, we'll go and fish in the lake. So we fished, coarse fish it was, we fished in the lake there, and that was a bit of my fishing in the ar- in while I was in the army because it was very difficult to carry a rod around, you know, with a rifle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but not that I had a rifle after I joined the band. Well, uh, we were pistols, we were anyway. The cavalry <laughs> pistols, of course, not rifles. Right. Um, you know, you can't use a rifle in a tank. But there we are. Anyway, um, so I didn't do a lot of fishing during those years, until I came out of the army then, and immediately uh, went fishing straight away, you know, more or less. In, um, in 1957, I started fishing again then, in, uh, in earnest, you know, going over to uh, Chew a couple of times, but we fished mainly the rivers, yeah. Wai and, um, and the Usk. And I... I had a friend, and I must mention my friend, Bill James. We were friends from when we were boys of 10-year-old. We lived in Tonopandi. And um, when I came out of the army, then we got together again, and we fished regularly. Now, Bill, he had a a box. His father was a a cabinet maker. His father made this box for him to carry his gear in. You've never seen anything like it. It was absolutely... Immaculate box. Yeah. Um, he had Mitchell 300 reels, you know, and all the floats, and they were all set out regimentally in the box. And um, But Bill never went fishing. He always dressed to go fishing, and he always wore a tie <laughs> to go fishing. He was a character, but he was a very shy man, really. Never, never got married. And uh, uh, he did have one girlfriend... And I had to go along with him, you know. <laughs> but anyway, we, we did a lot of fishing together on the Esk and the Y. And I can always remember fishing on the Y. And um, Bill hooked this pike, um, perch, sorry, a big perch. And he brought it in. And when he was getting the hook out, you could see there were three other treble hooks in his fish's mouth. And it was a fairly big perch, you know. And um, so, do you know, he spent most of the afternoon getting these hooks out. He'd work a little on a hook, then he'd put the fish, hold the fish in the water, you know, to f- for the fish to revive. Then he'd get it out and he'd work it out. Eventually, he got all three hooks out as well as, the, as his own and put the fish back and the fish wow. survived. And, of course, he was a man that never killed a fish, always put them back, trout, whatever it was. They went back. He's a great friend of mine, and I miss him tremendously. And uh, he used to keep his rod behind his front door, so that at any time when I called, I'd open the door and I'd say, "Come on, Bill, we're going fishing," and he'd be ready. And yeah. he'd come as he was. He'd just put a, a, a anorak on, and yeah. he'd have his clothes with his tie still on, you know. And yeah, <laughs> just the image. We fished. Yeah. yeah. Do you tie flies these days? I uh, I did tie some 
last year, before I went to Rutland, I uh, I tied a couple uh, extra to go to Rutland. Not that I need any extras, because I I literally have thousands, yeah. which I need to, uh, to jettison these days. I can always remember there was a fisherman, uh, one of the members of Osprey, Bill Fishfingers. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he'd won a couple of the uh, Fisherman of the Year before I did. And um, uh, I can remember him saying, well, he, he'd got all his flies and he just scraped all the dressings off and tied all new flies. Did he? Yeah. But he, he said, oh, they, uh, well, said a couple, couple of years and he said, no, no, they're no good. But mine, I mean, I've got some flies there that now are probably about 40 years old. Is <laughs> And do you know what it, it reminded me? You see, you got shields there in the uh, in the the fishing lodge there of from the Ospreys days. And my first competition shield, which I'd won, was for fly tying, and we used to have it. And you you touched on it earlier in the early days. In the Ospreys used to have the meetings upstairs in the uh, light bank. bank. It was always a Wednesday, mm-hmm. and. It, it was it was a great experience. Everyone's up there tying flies, and one thing I remember, it had like a Velux window on the roof, and it'd always be open. And because it was on a Wednesday, we could always hear the the noise from Sardis Road, the rugby Pontypridd yeah. would be playing there, you know. Yeah, yeah. The early days of Ospreys, you know, some of the people I can remember. I mean, Lynn Price was the secretary, and then there was Brian Ward, who was quite a character. Uh, Cliff Harvey, of course, Derek Thorne, Brian Couch, uh, Bob Challenger, and Lou Ride, of course, as you mentioned, Harry Bainham, and of course his son, Dennis Bainham, who Dennis is now the, the secretary of the club, Danny Lewis. Going on to your theatre work as well, because you've done a fair bit of acting as well, didn't you, in TV oh, work? Yeah. 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 You didn't do anything like, like that now, no? No, I, I have been asked. Uh, I'm still... <laughs> I'm still on the agent's books, on a couple of agent's books. And in fact, oh, just two or three days ago, I had a call from an agent asking me to do a job in um, uh, a couple of few days uh, up in um, Gloucester somewhere. But of course, today was one of the days, so I turned it down. Oh, was it? <laughs> but uh, I haven't really worked just before lockdown. Yeah. And I, I did a, a couple of casualties then, you know. Because most of my acting was on stage, and the last stage show I did was My Fair Lady. I played the part of Higgins, which is a part I did five times in all, actually, in various places, once in Ireland. And um, I did it with a company in Aberdeer called Call Stars, and uh, my daughter had auditioned for them, and she was playing the part of Eliza Doolittle, and they hadn't, they couldn't find a, or they didn't have at that time uh, a suitable uh, Higgins, Professor Higgins. So the producer contacted me and asked me would I go along, you see. So I went along and uh, uh, my daughter said, well, you, you can't do this, you know, there's a, there's a love interest, you know. So of course I said, yeah, of course, but it's acting. <laughs> <laughs> I've acted as a lover several times, <laughs> so uh, well that was it. And of course, unfortunately, that was the last show that Caroline did as well, because uh, she unfortunately she passed away in 
2013, you know. Yeah. yeah, I remember that was a shock out of the blue, Great wasn't loss. it? On holiday, wasn't and, it? Uh, yes, in Italy. Terrible. And, um, you know, I still can't believe it. You know, it's still. Because um, she was, she did quite a bit of acting. She didn't was she? good. She was a good. She was a good actor, a good singer. She could have been a prof- you know, professional. She went to Aberystwyth University, but the uh, music department took history. But yes, she did a lot of work with the music department because she was a, a good singer and a good performer. And Joan as well, she's been... Well, Joan, yes. Well, Joan did so many parts as well. Um, and this is how we met originally. Well, not how we met, because Joan was from Kenry Street in Tonopandi, and her brother, Graham, her elder brother, was the same year at school with me, so we were friendly, friendly with the brother. I knew of Joan's existence, but, you know, girls girls were not the in thing then. You know, boys, <laughs> we, we wanted to play sport and... Uh, do various and other things. Yeah. But um, anyway, Joan went to university and um, started teaching in London. And then, unfortunately, in 1960, I think her father passed away in the, the, the floods that we had in 1960. You know, and he did a lot of work and it must have affected him somehow. And uh, he passed away. So Joan came home. And she came home then and got a job then in... Uh, school in Porth, and she joined the Ronda Theatre Group, which is a group which I had formed some years earlier. And um, we were cast together, and well, she came first of all, and she did South Pacific, which was the first stage show that we did as a company. And Joan was in the chorus, and uh, I was playing the lead at the time. And then the following year, we picked Carousel as the show to do. And Joan was cast as uh, Julie, and I was cast as Billy Bigelow. I don't mean nothing to me. So they are a couple. Well, they are the leads. All right. Uh, um, well-known singer, Gordon McRae had been Billy Bigelow, you know, and so for, for the, the... He's a good singer as well. And um, so I did that part, and of course... In doing the part, we got to know each other very well, and uh, one thing led to another, and uh, yeah, yeah. there we are, and we're still together now after 50. We've been together now for 53 <laughs> years. That was a perfect casting then, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, yeah, so there we are. Because I've done uh, quite a bit of, I started off doing the, the TV extras work yeah, like yourself, well, I re- you know. I remember you started an agency. Yeah, and we'd, we we did all right, and I was doing um, oh, various things like Doctor Who and Merlin, casualty, stuff like that. And then I started getting parts, speaking parts then, mainly for Bob Lacombe and Welsh-speaking productions then, yeah. you know. And then I got asked for a few more, and then, to be honest, I got into it because it's just for the money. I didn't have the passion really for it, you know, but I kept getting asked to do speaking parts. And the last one I did was about two years ago, just before lockdown again, there was an agency called Beautiful Bearded Bastards. I don't know if you've come across them, actually. And uh, they're from Scotland, but they, they're an agent and they get different work. And uh, they cast me as a headmaster in a BBC production up in Dumbarton in Scotland. So they flew me up, and accommodation, and taxis, and everything to do it. And I had quite a, you know, a lengthy script as well, you know. And uh, do you know what? It wasn't for me. 
I done it and it all went good. But the preparation and the re I'm not very good at learning lines, you know. I'm I'm I gotta look at something and read it forty, fifty times for it to sink in. Some people can look at it and yeah. bang. But so to me, for what it was worth, I it was experience, but I'd rather just be in the background, no? Yeah. Well I was fortunate in learning lines as a very good memory. I mean, uh, the um, which stuck, you know. Although I had an accident about eighteen months ago, which has affected my memory, but uh, memory for lines I still have. Is there? And uh, you know, the, for example, uh, my fair lady. I could honestly, I could go on and do it tomorrow night. Really, I only I only need to look at it again. I can rem- remember most of it now, you know, and um, so I, I always had a good memory for lines. Yeah, I, I used to try and make it a habit never to carry a book in rehearsal. If I knew what we were doing, I would really not you know, read that part, so that I wouldn't have to carry a book around in rehearsal. Right, and. Uh, I very rarely did, you know. I certainly didn't in My Fair Lady because I'd already done it four times before I did it in, <laughs> in Aberdeer. Going back to your flies, you were saying you've got thousands of flies going back maybe 40 years or so. If you could, if someone told you, right, what, what would be your six flies to have in your box? Because a lot of the time, we've all got thousands of flies, hundreds of flies. But a lot of the time, you only stick to like half dozen patterns you know, for most of the time. Are there any patterns which you would have to have in your box then? Well, I would certainly go with the pheasant tail and um, my buzzers. And then I'd put in the Dialbach. Yeah. And, of course, also for fishing in Welsh waters, the Cockermondi, which was yeah. Cliff Harvey's uh, <laughs> favourite oh. fly, you know. Yeah. They definitely fish catchers, like, aren't they? Those patterns. They've always yeah. they've stood the test of time. Yeah. People still, especially the Dialbach. Yeah. And of course, there are so many variations of the Dialbach now. Yeah. But uh, the original will still catch fish. So, what would be your goals for this year? Well, we go to Rutland. I'd like to have a couple more days on Chew and uh, Blagden. And um, my goal is just to have a good day, really. And end yeah. up with a good meal, <laughs> <laughs> you know. I I have caught all the big fish that I want, really. You know, I I, I caught hundreds of uh, big, really big fish in my trips to uh, Argentina and um, uh, Alaska. Yeah. Well, this brings me on now to one more question because you spoke about various places all around the world. Really, you fished. Where would you want to be to make your last cast? Well, I think if my if my wife was with me, I would say Tierra del Fuego because the accommodation was so good and the food was so good uh, and the fishing, of course, was out of this world, Tierra del Fuego. Yeah. Catching sea trout of that size and, of course, that's where my, uh, that's where my, my so-called world record <laughs> comes from as well. Atlantic salmon. But... Uh, Salmon, yeah. Uh, yes, the accommodation, everything about it was uh, was good. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat. 
and it's been a long time coming because we did pencil this in for a while and I hope maybe this season we'll have a day somewhere. It'd be nice to have one on Blackton or Chew again. Yes. Where the first time we did fish together. That's right. Well, many thanks, Dennis. Well, thank you very much, Kerry. I've enjoyed it. And as I said, on my, on my list of favourite people, friends that I've known in the past and uh, current friends, well, obviously, you're one of them because, uh, <laughs> because I'd always remember that first day you came with me. Yeah. For a number, couple, another reason which I won't mention, but... Uh, <laughs> what was that, no? <laughs> well, uh, I will mention it, but you kept on casting out <laughs> to your right. <laughs> and we were in a drift, drifting down, you yeah. see. You were casting out to the right, so I said, why are you casting there, Kerry, instead of... He said, well, I've seen a fish out there. And of course, it was a different fish every time, wasn't it? Yeah, can't yeah, remember yeah. that, can you? No, no. no. <laughs> yeah. I can remember you casting out a few times out to your right, because I was yeah. on the, uh, the motor and you, you were was, on the yeah. front end. I, I, I can remember that vividly, actually, of you casting out to the right. Is it? And of course, it was your first day on the. Yeah. On we both caught fish, but I couldn't. I, it really was eye opener for me, because you were literally one flick, and you were just twenty foot of line out. Yeah. You know. And in the evening, it was so, like... Well, I just, occasionally, I just do a roll cast, you know? Yeah. Which, uh, when I'm in fishing on a place like that. Yeah. yeah. I thought, say, so we got tangled or something then, I can't remember. Maybe we might No, I don't think we ever got tangled. No, yeah. We were far enough apart in the boat, I think, and you were yeah. fishing with your right hand. I can, I can fish with my left, both hands. Oh, is it? Yeah, not as good with my left, but I can cast with my left hand. So, in a boat, that's very handy. Yeah. If you're on the motor and you're fishing left-handed and your man on the front is fishing right-handed. Well, well, when we go out now next, I'll be cast into the side as it is a fish yeah. to the side yeah. of the boat. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I mean, it works these days. I mean, but in those days, the fish were running up. And, and of course, they'd, they'd run towards the boat and they'd, they'd veer off to the yeah. right or left anyway. So, I mean, you, you were... Uh, you were right to try and fish there, yeah. obviously. I, I think by doing it now, you learn, learn these things over the years, but... but now if I was fishing, I'd always cast at an angle because you, you're drifting forward, you're covering that wider line going yeah, down than right. just straight ahead. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. It's true. Yeah, we definitely have to plan something. Definitely. I, I, you know, I've got a thousand more stories, but there's not enough time Oh, to we'll have to have a part two. <laughs> yes, sure. It's, it's been a great pleasure. Well, many thanks, Dennis. Well, thank you very much, Kerry. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon, where you will get two extra podcasts each month. That's one every week, plus bonus content, photography, and other exclusive content, plus access to over 60-plus episodes. You can join my Patreon channel by visiting patreon.com forward slash castingwithkellyjones, or see the links on my website, castingwithkellyjones.com. Or see my posts on Facebook and Instagram. Well, that's all for now. Tight lines and don't strike too soon. <laughs>